Section 37 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Liberty Stump, Fort Wayne, Indiana. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 2. Book the First. Chapter 3. THE DUCHESS JOSIANA Toward 1705, although Lady Josiana was twenty-three and Lord David forty-four, the wedding had not yet taken place, and that for the best reasons in the world. Did they hate each other? Far from it, but what cannot escape from you inspires you with no haste to obtain it. Josiana wanted to remain free, David to remain young. To have no tie until as late as possible appeared to him to be a prolongation of youth. Middle-aged young men abounded in those rakish times. They grew gray as young fops. The wig was an accomplice. Later on, powder became the auxiliary. At fifty-five, Lord Charles Gerard, Baron Gerard, one of the Gerards of Bromley, filled London with his successes. The young and pretty Duchess of Buckingham, Countess of Coventry, made a fool of herself for love of the handsome Thomas Velasquez, Viscount Falkenberg, who was sixty-seven. People quoted the famous verses of Corneille, the septuagenarian, to a girl of twenty, Marquis Simon Visage. Women, too, had their successes in the autumn of life. Witness Ninon and Marion. Such were the models of the day. Josiana and David carried on a flirtation of a particular shade. They did not love, they pleased each other. To be at each other's side sufficed them. Why hasten the conclusion? The novels of those days carried lovers and engaged couples to that kind of stage which was the most becoming. Besides, Josiana, while she knew herself to be a bastard, felt herself a princess, and carried her authority over him with a high tone in all their arrangements. She had a fancy for Lord David. Lord David was handsome, but that was over and above the bargain. She considered him to be fashionable. To be fashionable is everything— Caliban, fashionable and magnificent, would distance Ariel, poor. Lord David was handsome, so much the better. The danger in being handsome is being insipid, and that he was not. He betted, boxed, ran into debt. Josiana thought great things of his horses, his dogs, his losses at play, his mistresses. Lord David, on his side, bowed down before the fascinations of the Duchess Josiana, a maiden without spot or scruple haughty, inaccessible, and audacious. He addressed sonnets to her, which Josiana sometimes read. In these sonnets he declared that to possess Josiana would be to rise to the stars, which did not prevent his always putting the ascent off to the following year. He waited in the antechamber outside Josiana's heart, and this suited the convenience of both. At court all admired the good taste of this delay. Lady Josiana said, "'It is a bore that I should be obliged to marry Lord David.' I, who would desire nothing better than to be in love with him. Josiana was the flesh. Nothing could be more resplendent. She was very tall, too tall. Her hair was of that tinge which might be called red gold. She was plump, fresh, strong, and rosy, with immense boldness and wit. She had eyes which were too intelligible. She had neither lovers nor chastity. She walled herself round with pride. Men, oh, fie! A god only would be worthy of her, or a monster. If virtue consists in the protection of an inaccessible position, Josiana possessed all possible virtue. 
but without any innocence. She disdained intrigues, but she would not have been displeased had she been supposed to have engaged in some, provided that the objects were uncommon, and proportioned to the merits of one so highly placed. She thought little of her reputation, but much of her glory. To appear yielding, and to be unapproachable, is perfection. Josiana felt herself majestic and material. Hers was a cumbrous beauty. She usurped rather than charmed. She trod upon hearts. She was earthly. She would have been as much astonished at being proved to have a soul in her bosom as wings on her back. She discoursed on Locke. She was polite. She was suspected of knowing Arabic. To be the flesh and to be woman are two different things. Where a woman is vulnerable, on the side of pity, for instance, which so readily turns to love, Josiana was not. Not that she was unfeeling. The ancient comparison of flesh to marble is absolutely false. The beauty of flesh consists in not being marble. Its beauty is to palpitate, to tremble, to blush, to bleed, to have firmness without hardness, to be white without being cold, to have its sensations and its infirmities. Its beauty is to be life, and marble is death. Flesh, when it attains a certain degree of beauty, has almost a claim to the right of nudity. It conceals itself in its own dazzling charms as in a veil. He who might have looked upon Josiana nude would have perceived her outlines only through a surrounding glory. She would have shown herself without hesitation to a satyr or a eunuch. She had the self-possession of a goddess. To have made her nudity a torment, ever eluding a pursuing Tantalus, would have been an amusement to her. The king had made her a duchess, and Jupiter a Nereide, a double irradiation of which the strange brightness of this creature was composed. In admiring her you felt yourself becoming a pagan and a lackey. Her origin had been bastardy, and the ocean. She appeared to have emerged from the foam. From the stream had risen the first jet of her destiny, but the spring was royal. In her there was something of the wave, of chance, of the patrician, and of the tempest. She was well-read and accomplished. Never had a passion approached her, yet she had sounded them all. She had a disgust for realizations, and at the same time a taste for them. If she had stabbed herself, it would, like Lucretia, not have been until afterwards. She was a virgin stained with every defilement in its visionary stage. She was a possible Astarta in a real Diana. She was, in the insolence of high birth, tempting and inaccessible. Nevertheless, she might find it amusing to plan a fall for herself. She dwelt in a halo of glory, half wishing to descend from it, and, perhaps, feeling curious to know what a fall was like. She was a little too heavy for her cloud. To err is a diversion. Princely unconstraint has the privilege of experiment, and what is frailty in a plebeian is only frolic in a duchess. Josiana was in everything, in birth, in beauty, in irony, in brilliance, almost a queen. She had felt a moment's enthusiasm for Louis de Beaufels, who used to break horseshoes between his fingers. She regretted that Hercules was dead. She lived in some undefined expectation of a voluptuous and supreme ideal. Morally, Josiana brought to one's mind the line, Un botos de femme en hydra se termine. Hers was a noble neck, a splendid bosom, heaving harmoniously over a royal heart, a glance full of life and light, a countenance pure and haughty, and who knows? Below the surface was there not, in a semi-transparent and misty depth, an undulating supernatural prolongation, perchance deformed and dragon-like, a proud virtue ending in vice in the depth of dreams? Two. With all that, she was a prude. 
It was the fashion. Remember Elizabeth. Elizabeth was of a type that prevailed in England for three centuries, the 16th, 17th, and 18th. Elizabeth was more than English. She was Anglican. Hence the deep respect of the Episcopalian Church for that queen, respect resented by the Church of Rome, which counterbalanced it with a dash of excommunication. In the month of Sixtus V, when anathematizing Elizabeth, malediction turned to madrigal. Un gran cervello di principessa, he says. Mary Stuart, less concerned with the church and more with the woman part of the question, had little respect for her sister Elizabeth, and wrote to her as queen to queen and coquette to prude. Your disinclination to marriage arises from your not wishing to lose the liberty of being made love to. Mary Stuart played with the fan, Elizabeth with the axe. An uneven match. They were rivals, besides, in literature. Mary Stuart composed French verses. Elizabeth translated Horace. The ugly Elizabeth decreed herself beautiful, liked quatrains and acrostics, had the keys of towns presented to her by cupids, bit her lips after the Italian fashion, rolled her eyes after the Spanish, had in her wardrobe three thousand dresses and costumes, of which several were for the character of Minerva and Amphitrite, esteemed the Irish for the width of their shoulders, covered her farthingale with braids and spangles, loved roses, cursed, swore, and stamped, struck her maids of honour with her clenched fists, used to send Dudley to the devil, beat Burleigh, the chancellor who would cry, poor old fool, spat on Matthew, collared Hatton, boxed the ears of Essex, showed her legs to Bassompierre, and was a virgin. What she did for Bassompierre, the Queen of Sheba had done for Solomon. Consequently she was right, Holy Writ having created the precedent. That which is biblical may well be Anglican. Biblical precedent goes so far as to speak of a child who was called Ebnehaquam, or Melilshet, that is to say, the wise man's son. Why object to such matters? Cynicism is at least as good as hypocrisy. Nowadays England, whose Loyola is named Wesley, casts down her eyes a little at the remembrance of that past age. She is vexed at the memory, yet proud of it. These fine ladies, moreover, knew Latin. From the sixteenth century this had been accounted a feminine accomplishment. Lady Jane Grey had carried fashion to the point of knowing Hebrew. The Duchess Josiana Latinized. Then, another fine thing, she was secretly a Catholic, after the manner of her uncle, Charles the Second, rather than her father, James the Second. James the Second had lost his crown for his Catholicism, and Josiana did not care to risk her peerage. Thus it was that, while a Catholic, amongst her intimate friends and the refined of both sexes, she was outwardly a Protestant, for the benefit of the riffraff. This is the pleasant view to take of religion. You enjoy all the good things belonging to the official Episcopalian Church, and later on you die, like Grotius, in the odor of Catholicity, having the glory of a Mass being said for you by Le Père Pitot. Although plump and healthy, Josiana was, we repeat, a perfect prude. At times her sleepy and voluptuous way of dragging out the ends of her phrases was like the creeping of a tiger's paws in the jungle. The advantage of prudes is that they disorganize the human race. They deprive it of the honor of their adherence. Beyond all, keep the human species at a distance. This is a point of the greatest importance. When one has not got Olympus, one must take the Hotel de Rambouillet. Juno resolves herself into Araminta. A pretension to divinity not admitted creates affectation. In default of thunderclaps there is impertinence. The temple shrivels into the boudoir. Not having the power to be a goddess, she is an idol. There is besides in prudery a certain pedantry which is pleasing to women. 
the coquette and the pedant are neighbors their kinship is visible in the fop the subtle is derived from the sensual gluttony affects delicacy a grimace of disgust conceals cupidity and then woman feels her weak point guarded by all that casuistry of gallantry which takes the place of scruples in prudes it is a line of circumvallation with a ditch every prude puts on an air of repugnance it is a protection she will consent but she disdains for the present josiana had an uneasy conscience she felt such a leaning towards immodesty that she was a prude the recoils of pride in the direction opposed to our vices lead us to those of a contrary nature it was the excessive effort to be chaste which made her a prude to be too much on the defensive points to a secret desire for attack the shy woman is not straight-laced she shut herself up in the arrogance of the exceptional circumstances of her rank meditating perhaps all the while some sudden lapse from it it was the dawn of the eighteenth century england was a sketch of what france was during the regency walpole and dubois are not unlike marlborough was fighting against his former king james the second to whom it was said he had sold his sister miss churchill bolingbroke was in his meridian and richelieu in his dawn gallantry found its convenience in a certain medley of ranks men were equalized by the same vices as they were later on perhaps by the same ideas degradation of rank an aristocratic prelude began what the revolution was to complete it was not very far off the time when jelliot was seen publicly sitting in broad daylight on the bed of the marquis d'epinay it is true for matters re-echo each other that in the sixteenth century smeton's nightcap had been found under anne borlin's pillow if the word woman signifies fault as i forget what council decided never was woman so womanlike as then never covering her frailty by her charms and her weakness by her omnipotence has she claimed absolution more imperiously in making the forbidden the permitted fruit eve fell in making the permitted the forbidden fruit she triumphs that is the climax in the eighteenth century the wife bolts out her husband she shuts herself up in eden with satan adam is left outside three all josiana's instincts impelled her to yield herself gallantly rather than to give herself legally to surrender on the score of gallantry implies learning recalls melancus and amaryllis and is almost a literary act mademoiselle de scudery putting aside the attraction of ugliness for ugliness's sake had no other motive for yielding to pelisson the maiden a sovereign the wife a subject such was the old english notion josiana was deferring the hour of this subjugation as long as she could she must eventually marry lord david since such was the royal pleasure it was a necessity doubtless but what a pity josiana appreciated lord david and showed him off there was between them a tacit agreement neither to conclude nor to break off the engagement they eluded each other this method of making love one step in advance and two back is expressed in the dances of the period the minuet and the gavotte it is unbecoming to be married fades one's ribbons and makes one look old an espousal is a dreary absorption of brilliancy a woman handed over to you by a notary how commonplace the brutality of marriage creates definite situations suppresses the will kills choice has a syntax like grammar replaces inspiration by orthography makes a dictation of love disperses all life's mysteries diminishes the rights both of sovereign and subject by a turn of the scale destroys the charming equilibrium of the sexes the one robust in bodily strength the other all-powerful in feminine weakness 
strength on one side, beauty on the other, makes one a master and the other a servant, while without marriage one is a slave, the other a queen. To make love prosaically decent, how gross! To deprive it of all its impropriety, how dull! Lord David was ripening. Forty, tis a marked period. He did not perceive this, and in truth he looked no more than thirty. He considered it more amusing to desire Josiana than to possess her. He possessed others. He had mistresses. On the other hand, Josiana had dreams. The Duchess Josiana had a peculiarity, less rare than it is supposed. One of her eyes was blue, and the other black. Her pupils were made for love and hate, for happiness and misery. Night and day were mingled in her look. Her ambition was this, to show herself capable of impossibilities. One day she said to Swift, "'You people fancy that you know what scorn is.' "'You people,' meant the human race. She was a skin-deep papist. Her Catholicism did not exceed the amount necessary for fashion. She would have been a Puseyite in the present day. She wore great dresses of velvet, satin, or moire, some composed of fifteen or sixteen yards of material, with embroideries of gold and silver, and round her waist many knots of pearls, alternating with other precious stones. She was extravagant in gold lace. Sometimes she wore an embroidered cloth jacket like a bachelor. She rode on a man's saddle, notwithstanding the invention of side-saddles, introduced into England in the fourteenth century by Anne, wife of Richard II. She washed her face, arms, shoulders, and neck in sugar-candy, diluted in white of egg, after the fashion of Castile. There came over her face, after anyone had spoken wittily in her presence, a reflective smile of singular grace. She was free from malice, and rather good-natured than otherwise. End of section 37 Recording by Liberty Stump, Fort Wayne, Indiana